Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Uh, before we get started with uh, our new series, uh, I wanted to kind of give you a little, uh, I guess, let you know what happened as far as our offering that we took, I don't know, about a month ago, we took an offering uh, for a couple weeks for, uh, it was actually a friend of mine, his church, their youth pastor, excuse me, their worship pastor, their home was completely destroyed, leveled. The only thing that was there was the slab and the commode. I don't know, maybe everything went into the commode, I don't know, but that's all that was left after the tornado came through. And yet, I really, I felt like we as a church, I didn't know the difference that we would be able to make, but you know what? We made a huge difference. We were able to gather a total of $427 over two weeks. You, church, us, church our size, give yourself a round of applause. That's incredible. $427, and this is what the letter uh, from the friend of mine, his name is Lonnie Lehrman, he's the pastor of that church, and uh, he also has planted several churches in his area. Um, very godly man. He says, Dear pastor and church members, he says, We want to thank you for the love offering of $427 given to help those in our community who suffered loss during the recent storm. With this money, we would be able to supply their needs of food, clothing, and shelter. And it was really incredible as I was talking with, uh, with actually another friend of mine who, who pastors there. And he was kind of telling me this story about how they just glorified God before. They were broke. They didn't have anything. As a matter of fact, all the, uh, the events of the storm that ravaged their city took everything. So all he had was literally the clothes on his back. And he had those. He basically wore those clothes and just washed them and wore them. Washed them and wore them from like Wednesday to Sunday. And he worshipped on Sunday morning in the same clothes as the day of the tornado that took away his home. That's just incredible. And he just sat back and he said, you know what, I don't understand. And literally, there were news outlets out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The the ABC affiliate caught that and they just wanted to just share that story because it was so positive. Isn't that positive, church? If somebody in the midst of a storm can sit back and say, you know what, I don't understand why it happened. I don't understand what I'm going to do, but I know the God who provides. And yet, God is still providing. As a matter of fact, all through that and and I believe the exposure that they've had through media has really just been something that they have just reaped blessing upon blessing upon blessing through because they praise God even though their circumstances were very, very scary and tumultuous. And I just wanted to share that with you and I just wanted to brag on you as a church. I mean, the little church that we are, you know what? It can make a big, big difference in someone's life. And you know what? They are on the road to recovery. Those people are. They're on the road to recovery and that money will help them to, uh, to be able to do just that. Well, we're on our first week, and this is actually a little bit longer of a series than what I normally do. It's going to be a seven-weeker, so I expect you to be here all seven weeks. And it is a, a seven-week series, and it's called Revolution. And really the reason why it's called Revolution is it's been birthed through several things, but one of the things that, that I specifically see, and maybe, maybe you're the same, maybe you see this on Twitter, Facebook, I don't know what y'all do, ladies, on Pinterest. Maybe you see this on Pinterest. Maybe even like you're pinning up a cake and you put something on there about this. I don't know. But whatever y'all do. But, you know, there's one of the things that I've seen in culture and I see within Christians and I see within non-Christians. They're, they're kind of setting back and they're really scared. They're scared because they're, they're, they look at, at really the, the morals and values of our country and they're saying, what in the world is going on? 
What in the world is going on? It seems like everything that we held dear and everything that really this country had been founded upon, and yet it seems like it's moving. Does anyone else? Just raise your hands in agreement. It's fine. If I'm the only one, that's cool. We're still doing this revolution, so here we go. Right? But I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not fearful. I know that he, you know, he is the Lord and He's on the throne, okay? He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. I get that. And I'm not, I'm not belittling his, his kingdom on earth that He's bringing through us Christians. I only want to enhance it through this series. So we're going to take seven weeks. It's going to be a little bit different of a series. This, this message specifically, it's really meant to just encourage you. Meant to encourage you and then not... Typical of a lot of my messages where there's things you write down and you're like, oh yeah, I want to apply that to my life. This is really, this is meant to encourage you. The application is going to come through uh, weeks two through seven, of which we're all going to be here, right? All right, so revolution. The birth with this, this idea and the challenge of what I see and what I hear and yet what I know to really exist. And yet, it was really drawn in. I, I heard this, this story that I think will tell, um, it, it'll say a little bit about revolution. And this is a story that I heard uh, of events that happened on May 20th. And this was right after the Moore, Oklahoma tornado. Everybody knows about that. And it was, this reporter was sitting there, and he's, he's reporting live, and, and the pan behind him is just empty. There, were, there are roads There are no signs, there are no homes, there are no buildings, there's no cars, there's no farm equipment, there's nothing. It's just vast emptiness. And this reporter's standing there and he's reporting and this is after all of those who were injured had been taken off and all of those who had lost their lives had been uh, taken off. But he's sitting there and he says, the very next thing we need to do, and I, I haven't seen the footage, but I've only heard about the footage, that he has the microphone and he said, the very next thing that we need to do is we need to put up signs. We need to put up street signs. We need to put up road signs. Because as it stands right, at, right now, we don't know where we are and we don't know where we're going. He says, we need to put up signs. It's like, and he's passionate about it. He's, he's saying, you know what? I'm sitting here in the, in the area of vastness and this is so confusing to me because everything that existed is no more and now all of a sudden, I don't even know where I am. So how does that convey to revolution? You know, morals and values in this country have always meant to be the road signs to help us in our country. Morals and values. Virtue, right? We've heard those words. We like those words. Morals, values, and virtues have always supposed to be the, the guiding light, the, the road sign for us to say, okay, this is where we are. We're not perfect as a country. We're not perfect as a people. How could a, a whole country of broken people be perfect, right? Is that impossible? Say amen if you agree. It's impossible. But yet the reality is you have to have these road signs. You have to have signs that let you know where you are, but also where you want to go. And the thing that guides us is morals, values, and virtue. Because if we don't have those things as a country, we have nothing. We have nothing. We don't have freedom. We don't have liberty. We don't even have in this country the the hope of, of an existence that's governed by law. We don't. It's time for revolution. It's time for, 
for us to have a, a time of personal revival, even in a church our size. But I believe if the Lord Jesus, if He is really the King and Lord of your life, and you let Him be the, the King and Lord of your life, I believe that even in a church our size, with the amount of people who are in here who would hear this message over the Internet, that we could have a great influence. We could have a fantastic influence, not just, not just within this church to fill these, this place up. I mean... Really, I mean, that would be great and that would be wonderful. But this, the influence of this church and Christians right here in Dublin, Lawrence County, needs to get outside of these walls. It needs to go outside of these walls. It needs to permeate your workplace. And it needs to be lived out by you. So, a little catchphrase for this series you will hear several times. It's kind of cheesy, but if you know me, that kind of fits. A revolution within your soul will bring healing for the whole. A revolution for the soul will bring healing for the whole. You see, that's my hope with this whole, with this whole series. That if you just have a revolution in your soul that something just turns up in you and you start dreaming of something that could be and should be and must be, that something will happen within this place, within you personally. And then if you're, if you're husbands and if you're fathers and if you're mothers and your wives, and then it will also start to take root in your children. And then all of a sudden it goes from your children into their schools. And then into their schools and then they start having influence on their peers. And then all of a sudden it has influence on their teachers. And then their teacher has influence when they get together with their principal. And then the principal, oh my goodness, then the principal is actually making sort of decisions that are more based off morality, biblical morality, virtue, and value. But it starts with who? That's right. And I'm part of us. It starts with all of us. It has to begin with us. We can't sit back and we can't, we can't point the blame at everybody else and say, well, it's their fault and it's that, you know, they did this and they did that and they don't want this. We have to accept some responsibility and step up as Christians to say, if God is truly on the throne, then I need to live like it. If He's really on the throne, I need to live like it. But it takes some vision. It takes some vision. It takes some foresight for us. I've been doing a lot of reading in regards to this and, and one of the one of the books that I've been reading is by, uh, or it's by Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer, um, and this, the book was written in 1980, but it's so timely for today. He says, people, Christians just need to lift their eyes up. They just need to not look down and, oh, I've got to do this, and the world's just it's terrible, and I've got this, and I'm broke, and I don't have this, and what are we going to do? They need to lift their head up and start to see things as they really are. It takes people a vision. Not in a spiritual sense, but I'll tell you a story about some other people, a vision that, cha- that just shaped and changed the world. Uh, some people uh, by the name of Orville and Wilbur Wright. What did they do? Tell me, church. Airplanes. Airplanes flying, right? They basically are the reason why we're flying and not just driving everywhere. Um, and they had vision. As a matter of fact, what's incredible about their story and their story of vision is, well, A, their dad was a preacher, so they obviously get, you know, they're a step up in my book. But they were preacher's kids. And their dad was kind of a circuit preacher. He wasn't like, you know, just a preacher at one church. And, you know, he didn't just pastor a church and kind of do what I do. He kind of had influence and he would go all around. And he would bring home to uh, little Orville and Wilbur, he'd bring home little trinkets. And he'd bring home those little trinkets after his journeys. And, and one of the little trinkets that he would bring home are those little bamboo helicopter things that have the uh, rubber bands around them. You know what I'm talking about, church? 
And it's like, you know, you, you kind of wind them up and then you throw them up in the air and, and who knows where they go. And, you know, and moms yell, don't do that in the house. You know, all that stuff. You know, you're like those types of trinkets. And they'd bring them home and they started to see this thing. They'd wind up and they'd throw it in the air and they would see it fly. And then all of a sudden it would fall. And you know what birthed in them? A vision. It birthed in them a vision to say, wow, this is something that can be, that should be, and that needs to be. So they started to have this vision and they kind of grew up and they were bicycle mechanics, right? Bicycle mechanics that changed the world. Just when you thought that you had nothing to add. Bicycle mechanics. And yet... They start dreaming and they have these, these visions of childhood and they get together and, you know, both of them, they're very much wanting to do the same thing and you have that whole synergy thing and they're thinking and they're pretty brilliant-minded and they're working on bikes by day and then they're trying to funnel their, you know, their passion at night of, of getting airplanes to fly and then eventually they did. And they kind of put together these plans that for four years, four years, it would be crash and burn. Crash and burn. Four years. Four years of everybody scratching their head saying, it's not going to happen. Give it up. Why are you spending all your money on this? Stick to bicycles. Airplanes cannot fly. That's not going to happen. But yet they had that little vision of that trinket their daddy brought home from them. Or for them, rather. This little trinket. He says, you know what? I, I believe that it can be. I believe that it should be. And I believe that it will be because there was a vision that was being planted within them. So all of a sudden... After four years of discovery, they finally work their model and they think that they have it. And they do. And the first flight happened at Kitty Hawk, didn't it? First flight happened. But you know what happened also? The people in their day, the media, didn't cover that story. The media didn't cover the story. As a matter of fact, half the media didn't cover the story because they thought, what possible use could airplanes have anyway? I mean... Really. They had no vision. But Orville and Wilbur said, you know what? Possibilities are limitless. They had, say it, vision. They didn't just see things as they, as they were. They saw things as they should be. This is actually a quote from uh, Orville, right? He says this. He says, if we worked on the assumption that what is accepted as true is true, then there would be little hope for advance. Think about that. He says, if we just work on the assumption of what everybody's telling us, like, that's not going to happen. You can't get that thing to fly. There's no way. It's pointless. Why are you spending all your time and money? It's just a dead-end road. Stick to bicycles. There's so much future in that. You can get there so fast, you know. And yet, I love his quote because he says, if we work on the assumption that what is accepted as true really is true, then there would be little hope for advance. You see, Christians, we don't just operate on what media tells us is true, do we? Because the media doesn't tell you that Jesus Christ is, is the Lord of Lords and He's the King of Kings, does it? But we operate under, under that fact. Not just the idea, not just the thought, that fact. That He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet, I believe he's instilling us, or he wants us to bring to our culture, into our people, into our family, the vision of what could be, what should be, and what must be. And it takes all of us. It takes all of us. 
there's a verse that kind of speaks into this. This is not the main text for today, but there's a verse that speaks into this. It's Proverbs 29, verse 18. The one that's on the screen is actually from the uh, New American Standard Bible, but I'm going to read the one from the NIV, which is probably the copy that you have in your hand. The one that's on the screen says this, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. See, where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained. When there's no people, just people do whatever they want to do. Isn't that what's happening in our culture right now? Isn't that what's happening in our government right now? Isn't that what's ha- what many Christians and people believe has been happening in the White House for the last 10 or 12 years? Maybe longer? That, you know, there's no vision. It's just like, it's just subsistence, subsistence living. It's just for today and what do I got to do and who's going to scratch my back and I got to scratch theirs and I want to keep my place here and all of these things. But yet there's no vision. There's, we're not going anywhere. We're just making it day by day. See, many Christians, they just do that. They just live day by day. There's no vision. They don't live with the idea of hope. And it's just they limp along and they wonder why they're in the situation they are. And poor, poor, fiddle for me. Yet when God's Word says, we need to have vision. We need to see things as they, they should be and how they could be and how they must be instead of just viewing our life through a television or through through other people who are bent in, in, in one political way or another to say, you know what? It takes a revolution of my soul to change my reality. It takes a revival within my soul to not just change my reality, but also to change my family, to change my workplace. And hopefully that it would go from my house to the courthouse and then, oh my goodness, maybe it'll even reach the White House. Who knows? Maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe both. I don't know. But it says, where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained. Where there's no vision, you see, vision keeps people going in the same direction. It's not just synergy and like a, a workplace word. It's, it's everybody doing the same thing. It's Christians following the Lord Jesus, doing the Great Commission, doing everything to the glory of God. You see, that's vision living. Instead of just doing whatever it is that you want to do and living however you want to live and then you point out everybody else's problems. Instead of pointing out everybody else's problems, maybe we need to look in a mirror and say, wow, I've kind of aged. I'm a little more grumpy than I used to be. Hmm, maybe I need to check my attitude. Maybe I need to bring up a revolution within my soul. So then it would bring hope to the whole. I don't know. I'm crazy enough to believe it. The NIV says it this way. NIV says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where there's no revelation. That means no divine revelation. You see, when, when God is not able to speak into your life, it says in this text, it says that people cast off restraint. See, when, when you don't allow God to speak into your life, you just cast off restraint. You're just like, you know what, whatever, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do because if the Lord Jesus is not the King of kings and Lord of lords of your life, you are. And if you are, it says you just cast off restraint and then you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to give you that divine revelation. And many of us, on a corporate level, that's kind of what we think has happened. Even in White House and other parts, not just political, not just the political season now, but, you know, for decades. And we think, 
We've been going down the slippery slope and I don't know where we're going. We need vision. We need, we need street signs to tell us where we are, but then also where we're, to, we're supposed to go. Our main text this morning is from the book of Acts 17. If you would flip there. Acts 17. Another great example of the idea of vision. Acts 17, verse 16. And if, you, uh, if, if you're not necessarily a studier of the Bible, the book of Acts is kind of like a history book of a history lessons and just telling the story of the early church, the first century church specifically. So it's an interesting read, and not just if you like history, but then also because it really capitalizes and you see the movement of God. And you know what? I think that's what I desire. That's what I desire over these next seven weeks is there's a, a movement of God, not just our, as, as a church, but as people, as individuals. So Acts 17, verse 16. I'll give you a little bit of the setup of this. The main kind of character in this story is the Apostle Paul. He had been, uh, they tell the story of his conversion earlier in this book. He literally had gone from someone who persecuted Christians, hated Christians, even sought out to kill Christians, had a, just a radical thing that happened, a, a, a vision from God, literally, and he went from death to life, and he surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus, and he turned his whole life around. And literally, it was that fast. And now he went from persecuting Christians to being the, the biggest spokesperson for Christ. And... You're going to see this uh, in verse uh, 16, just as, as the passion of which he speaks. What we're going to do is just uh, read along, and then I'll just take breaks as need be. We're, it's a long passage. While Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy. We know that from the section of Scripture right before this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who had happened to be there. See, Paul was, he was waiting for his friends. He was greatly distressed because he, he, wasn't, he didn't just have his head down. He lifted his head up and he got displeased on what he saw because he saw just a community full of idols. And idols for them were literally things that they would carve out of rock or wood and they would, they would worship them as their gods. And he just got so displeased and he's sitting back and he's like, oh my goodness, how could this possibly be? We've got a huge problem here. And he's looking out and he sees all these idols and he sees all this idol worship going on. And he says, this must not be. This cannot be. And he dreams of something that has to be. So he reasoned, I love this. Look at verse 17 again. He says, so he reasoned in the synagogue... Right? That's the church. He reasoned in the church with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. That's Greek people who had basically, basically turned their life over and now they were following the, the uh, Judaic law. And he says, it started in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. This is crazy already. So now that means what, was, what started in the church has made its way out to the marketplace. How profound of an idea in our culture. 
They would actually leave the church and it would leave the seats and it would leave people standing on stages just like this, but yet it would find its way into the marketplace. The Apostle Paul, he says, you know what? If I'm going to have a great influence for the cause of Jesus Christ, I've got to do more than sit on my butt in a seat. I've got to do more than just stand in a church and talk to people. He says, I need to get out amongst the people. I need to actually start sharing things in the marketplace. That would be your workplace, church. That's what that would be. That would be your workplace. I know it's difficult, but imagine how difficult it is for him. This, this area is just full of pagan worship, idol worshipers. And he says, you know what? If something must be, and it has to be, and it should be, he says, then it's got to leave the synagogue. It's got to leave the church. It has to leave the church. As we, you stand up and you walk out of the church, it has to find its way to your life on Monday morning when you go to work. So it's at the church, at the synagogue. It's in the marketplace. And it says, day by day with those who happen to be there. I love this. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to have an influence and I'm not afraid to tell people about Jesus. Jesus saved my life. I believe he would save your life. I know he could save your life. And he says, so what else am I going to do? Of course I'm going to share the greatest news I've ever heard. Why would I keep it to myself? Then you see a little transition here in verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, Why, what is this babbler trying to say? Maybe you, some of you are saying that about me right now. I don't know. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Two things about these, these groups, the Epicurean uh, philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. The Epicurean uh, philosophers, probably words you'll never use, but I'll just give you a little bit of background here. The Epicureans, they believed that it was a matter of pleasure and happiness. That's the way of finding meaning in life. It was a matter of pleasure and happiness. Like if I can have more and I can acquire more and then it's all about me, then if I can do all these things, that's really the meaning of life. And they basically push God out of the equation. It was just philosophy. Literally, what philosophy does, philosophy asks questions that theology answers. That's what it is. And yet, the Epicurean, or Epicureanism, if you want the $5 word, um, but I, I do, the Epicurean philosophers, they're sitting in this area of Athens, which is, is the cultural center. I mean, this is, this is the hubbub. This is everything. This is like all the authority of the White House and all the influence of L.A. and, and New York. I mean, that's what this area is for him. And he's there, and he's kind of just having this discussion with Epicureans, and they don't even want to hear it, because all they believe is it's a matter of, of pleasure. What can I acquire? The Stoic... Uh, philosophers or stoicism their idea was a matter of personal discipline and self-control you've you've heard the term stoic if somebody's response whether they go through something that's that's difficult and you probably heard the word and they were just very stoic comes from the same place it means you're emotionless that it's a matter of self-control and personal discipline and yet it's it's almost robotic they don't believe that they're that, that there's an afterlife, they don't believe in God. It's just a matter of, of the human body and that's it. That's what this philosophy believed. Ironically enough, both of these philosophies um, were basically done away with, Christ, with Christianity because all the people were asking these questions and they knew the people of faith had the answers. Amen? So all of a sudden, at the end of verse 18... 
He says they, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So he seizes the moment. He's gone from the church, like they wouldn't even care, to, and they wouldn't even go debate philosophy and that kind of stuff in the church, Stoicism and Epicureanism. They wouldn't even go do all that. They're going to be out in the marketplace, out in the, out in the world. So now you have somebody who's a person of faith who's actually stepped into the world system to speak truth into the world system. That's what you call revolution. Verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. or Areogop, Areo, that word. I'll get it later. They said to him, may we know that this new teaching is that, or may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what you mean. I love how the Word of God says this in verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So like, this is what happens here. And literally, the word that I couldn't pronounce, and I'm not going to dare try and pronounce it again because you'll laugh again and I'm going to feel bad about myself. It also is, is termed Mars Hill. So I'm going to say Mars Hill um, for my benefit, largely. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Mars Hill and said, and I love this, he goes from being a spectator to now he's being a participant. He's gone from, oh, I'm just sitting down, ooh, that's interesting, and woo, I'm, I'm listening to all this and all of these. He says, no, 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 he stands up. This is the cultural center. Church, you don't understand how important this is. He's standing up in Athens. It is the the world's cultural center. So much influence here. And he stands up. And he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. They had to have been thinking and sitting high in their chairs thinking, Oh, thank you for noticing. He says, I see that you're very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Hmm. He's getting to something here. He says, for what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. So he says, yeah, I've I've noticed this from your culture. I've I've, I've looked around and you've got all these little, uh, you know, he didn't say it, but it's like these little pathetic idols and wood and rock and all this stuff. It's like, that's worthless. But hey, I really want you to know, I noticed that you have this this other thing that's kind of set up to, to an unknown God. And Paul says, I want to tell you something about that unknown God that you're confused about. I want to tell you something about him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built, built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Paul says, you don't need to live a questioning life. 
You need to live a life of vision. There's a God who knows you. He knows who you are and where you are. He created you. There's no mistakes with God. Church, I want to tell you, whatever situation you're in right now, God doesn't want to leave you in that situation. He wants to bring you out. If you feel like you're in a pit, I'll tell you, God's wanting to roll down a ladder so you can get out. But you have to do what He tells you to do to have victory. You do. If you want a revolution of your soul and you want change to happen in your life and you want personal revival, you can't keep doing the same things. You can't. Because if you do the same things, you're going to get the same results. Which is the definition of insanity. And yet, he speaks into their life and he, he tells them that, that God... Lord Jesus determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. What does that say about us? That means there's no accident in the culture that we're growing up in. There's no accident with the generation that you were born into. There's no accident that you're sitting here at this church. There's no accident of what's happening at the White House or the Capitol building or at the courthouse or at the Supreme Court building. There's no accident. There's no accident. That God knew exactly what's going on, the time and place that you would live. And He knows the exact thing that He wants you to do. He knows what you need to do. He knows that, that people at your workplace are dying and they're destined for hell, but they need, they need the vision and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God knows that and He wants you to do that. He wants you to speak that truth. Because you know what? As much as you want to believe, there's probably not anyone else going to. But a revolution within your soul will bring healing to the whole. A revolution within your soul. That means the change, the revival within you. It will affect other people. When you live with vision, it's attractive to other people. When you, when you live with purpose, that's attractive to other people because the world system is, they just do whatever they want to do. Kind of like the, the people of Athens, they're just doing whatever they want to do and they'll worship this God and they'll worship that God. And Paul brings them to attention. He says, no, 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 you're, you're, you're kind of getting it all wrong. And he wanted to seize this, this opportunity and give them the vision of the gospel. Verse 29. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He says that God did this for a purpose. God didn't just create you and say, go ahead, Skippy, you're on your own. Nope, you got it. Go get him, tiger. God didn't do that. Paul tells us, he says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And, what's the next two words? And find him. And he says, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then at the end of verse 28, he, he actually uses one of their, their poets. A, a pagan poet. He uses some of their poetry and it finds its way into the Word of God. You're talking about how, how, how church is supposed to redeem culture. This is a great example. 
Church is supposed to redeem culture instead of just being so far removed from culture and, and point fingers at culture and say, oh, you're doing that so wrong. And I really wish you were over here with us, but I'm going to be over here and you're going to be over there. You see, the Word of God says it's a little bit different. And the Apostle Paul literally goes through and he talks about this pagan poet and, and right from their culture. The end of verse 28. He says, as, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But Paul is, is drawing something from their culture and then he's putting it right into gospel language. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what, church? Repent. Say it again. Repent. He says, the, the, time, the time is up. We can't just keep doing the same thing we're doing. We can't just keep pointing fingers at everybody else and saying, well, you've got it wrong and you've got it wrong and I wish you were like me and you've got it wrong and wow, I've got this thing worked out and you don't and you really need what I have. No, the Word of God says what we need to do, Christians, the first thing we need to do is repent of our situation. We need to repent of things that we have done because a revolution for your soul will bring healing for the whole. And how do you have that, that revolution? First thing you have to do is you have to repent. You have to understand, you know what? I've got a part to play in this problem too. This isn't, this isn't a matter of Christians against everybody else. This is a matter of what have I done wrong and how can I make retribution for what I've done wrong? Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. You see, the Apostle Paul is not saying the name Jesus because he, he's, he's still trying to, to carry them in and he doesn't want them to think that he's just trying to convert them into a religion. He doesn't want them to just be converted to a religion. He wants them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But he knows if I just throw out the name Jesus, they're going to say, oh, I see what you're getting at. You're like everybody else. You're like everybody else. You're, just, you're one of those Jesus freaks. You just want everybody to just come to Jesus and it's just all about Jesus and so you want me to be crazy like them. The Apostle Paul's a little bit more cunning in his delivery. He does want them to be a Jesus freak. I proudly am one. And he says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man. We know the man is Jesus that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him, which is Jesus, from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Not really sure what a sneer is. I think maybe a scoff. Maybe somebody laughed. Somebody just blew it off. Maybe you sneer. I don't know. I don't. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the area of Mars Hill, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There's three responses. There's three responses. Did you see it? When the Apostle Paul, he sat there at, at Mars Hill in Athens, and he stands before the people, 
And there's so many people are, are hearing this message. It says distinctly, some sneered, some blew it off, some scoffed it off saying, whatever, you're just like everybody else. Bring the Stoics in again. I like what they have to say. Bring the Epicureans in. I'm, I'm all about pleasure and happiness. It's all about me anyway. You see, some of them blew off the message. And then there's a second group of people here. Some of them received the message and they wanted to hear it just a little bit more. But then the third group of people did what? They heard the message. At first they became followers of Paul, it says. Doesn't it say that in the text? It says that they became followers of Paul and believed. You see, it wasn't that Paul, Paul knew that he wasn't the Savior, but he knew the, the way to convey to that message, to convey the message to that group of people is he didn't want to have a bunch of people make false claims for Christ. So he cast the net wide and he said, those who want to be saved, basically follow after him and his message. And it says that they believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the, the ruling party of Mars Hill. He was, he was the, uh, literally the, the people there in Athens that met at Mars Hill. That was, they were the people who dictated morality. They were the people who dictated value. And they were the people who dictated virtue in the known world at the time. Very influential. And also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. But you see, it started with a vision. It started with the vision. Paul received, he received Christ through a vision, literally a vision. He fell to his knees and he was, he was blinded. And he was blinded because of his own sin. He was blinded because he had to have a, a, something huge to happen in his life, something God had to get his attention for him to fall to his knees to understand that he wasn't the man. To understand that the Lord Jesus is the man. So he had to have some power taken away from him. And yet, it was the vision of God that he, that he had that transformed his life. It literally says they were like scales on his eyes and they fell off and he went from blind to being able to see. He went from, from hopeless to hopeful. He went from a life of hostility to a life of peace. And he was so moved by this experience that he literally went out in pairs and he sent people out in pairs to share the good news of Jesus. Because this, this vision, this revelation that, that he had within himself, and he says, I've been changed by this and I know that this change will bring a revolution for, for people who would hear this message. So he picks the most influential place in, in that time. And he seizes this opportunity but it starts in the church. Then it goes into the marketplace, into the workplace. This is the free-flowing area. This is Walmart on a Friday night, right? Walmart. Everybody goes to Walmart on Friday night. It's the craziest thing. Or Kroger on Saturdays, I found yesterday, right? So he's, he's just available. So he, he goes from the church with the good news of Jesus, and then he starts sharing the good news of Jesus at the marketplace, in the open air, and people around. 
And then all of a sudden, because he had done that well, then he had earned the respect, listen to me, he had earned the respect of those who were around him, and they said, you know what? There's something credible about your message. And because there was something credible about his message, then it allowed him to speak to the grander audience at Mars Hill. But it started in the church. And it made its way through the marketplace. And because the credibility and the vision and, and the hope that was found in his message, then he had earned himself the opportunity to speak to a grander scale. But where did it start? With Paul? It started on a personal level. There was a revolution that happened in his soul. That it wasn't a matter of how good of a Jew he was going to be and he was a Pharisee and he knew all the right answers and he didn't necessarily live it out. As a matter of fact, he, he, he didn't really live it out well at all. I guess he was a good Jew, but he would have been a terrible Christ follower because he literally lived by the law and he didn't love people, which is the very thing that Jesus told us to do. And yet, he had to have a revolution within his soul, a revival within his soul. And because that, it brought hope for the whole. It brought hope to you if you're a follower of Jesus. But it comes down to a decision. It comes down to, are you going to live your life with vision? Are you going to allow the Lord Jesus to give you revelation, to give you vision about what could be, what must be, and what should be. And I believe, if you open your eyes, Christians, if you will not just have your head down and think that, you know, the world has just gone to, to hell in a handbasket, but I think if you just lift your head up and you see things as they really are, then I think that you'll still see that Jesus Christ is on the throne. Because He is.